Welcome to this video class. We are in Acts chapter 27. We have followed the journeys and work of the Apostle Paul. He first came to our attention in the book of Acts during the stoning of Stephen. He was in favor of that. We came to that back in chapter 7. Then he was called Saul of Tarsus. He was a militant Pharisee with aggressive intent to capture Christians and put them in prison. On one of those missions, he suddenly met Jesus Christ. He witnessed and heard the resurrected Christ speak to him. And then he heard the gospel, and his life was changed. After his repentance and baptism, he determined to preach Christ to both Jews and Gentiles, careful not to ask of Gentiles any more than God required of all people. His journeys have been the subject of our studies in the recent chapters of Acts, and his defenses, which became necessary because of the false accusations of unbelieving Jews. He appealed to Rome, and that journey begins in this chapter, Acts chapter 27. Four fast facts. King Agrippa and Festus agreed. Paul's appeal to Rome was warranted. That's at the end of chapter 26. More important, earlier in the narrative, God said Paul would testify in Rome. That's back in chapter 23 and verse 11. This journey starts from Caesarea. The narrative doesn't arrive in Rome until the middle of chapter 28. Chapter 28 and verse 17. But we're ready to start here in chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramithium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, 
but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. First, I want you to notice the map I have on the screen. This map traces the journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome. I'll leave this map up as we go through the chapter. The first paragraph in chapter 27 gets us started on the journey, and you can already see both good and bad. Leaving Caesarea, Paul is accompanied by the centurion, Julius. When they come to Sidon, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Julius behaved much like Lysias in Jerusalem, a thoroughly professional officer with a tendency toward kindness when it seemed warranted. The word needs surely refers to food and other items Paul's party may have required on board, but may also include simply visiting with friends. From there, under or south of Cyprus, because of the winds were against the ship, moving close to the shore, then across the open sea to Myra. According to verse 6, a change of ship. And as they launched on toward Rome, the trouble came, the storm. And you'll see the words dangerous and the possibility of injury and much loss. Paul advised them against it, but they set out to sea. I'm going to leave the map up and we'll move through the rest of the chapter. Navigation in this part of the Mediterranean was always dangerous after the 14th of September and was considered impossible after the 11th of November. I'm going to move on now. Acts 27, 13 through 38. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of the small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, 
you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted for you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pressure of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having, taking, uh, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Starting with verse 14, let me ask that you look down through these verses and observe all the descriptive phrases of what happened that Luke documents in this narrative, by the way, that Luke was a part of. In verse 14, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. In verse 14, they used supports to undergird the ship, fearing they would run aground. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Verse 20, no small tempest lay on us, and all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Did you hear that in verse 20? All hope abandoned. This might be called the perfect storm. It looked like at this point it would claim as many as 276 souls. Now, Remember the collective pronoun we indicates that the writer, Luke, is with them. This 
is the time and place where people are strongly tempted to just say a final prayer and wait for certain death. I think of those among the uh, 276 who had no belief in God, no hope of any good outcome, just death, perhaps a painful struggling death, and that's it. At last, all hope was gone. You eat a final meal and then throw the remainder of the wheat into the sea. They did this only after the urging of the Apostle Paul. Paul becomes the encourager. He takes on that Barnabas-like persona. I'm going to continue reading now, 39 to 44. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes they tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safety, safely to land. The day after the storm, the plan was to make for the shoreline. They cast off the anchors, left them in the sea. They made their best effort to make shore, but hit a reef. Then the vessel ran aground and the vessel broke up. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. But do you remember the centurion guarding Paul, Julius? He wished to save Paul, so he kept them from carrying out their plan. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. That's Acts chapter 27. Next, our takeaways. So what important lessons can we learn from this very dramatic narrative in Acts chapter 27? One, Christians in a crisis can be voices of reason. There was panic on this ship. The crew and passengers could not think of any rescue measures they had confidence in. Paul had the insight from God about all this, but in addition, he had the composure to communicate and to calm the people and give clear instructions for safety. Christians in a crisis can be voices of reason. We don't have to panic like everybody else because we don't have the same perspective as everybody else. We worship and serve a God who is in control. Of all people in the world, Christians ought to be people with maturity and the capacity to lead and guide and give others courage. But it's not automatic. You don't come out of the waters of baptism with this mature capacity to be a voice of reason. It is not an automatic result of baptism. 
No, after your baptism, you have to apply yourself and grow, and you can become a voice of reason. As you draw closer and closer to God in prayer, as you read and study the Word and worship and gain experience in being a servant of God and servant of others, one product of that discipline from God is you become a voice of reason. In circumstances where nobody knows what to do, and everybody is gripped by fear. Christians in a crisis can be voices of reason. Number two, before a crisis like this, you need to make certain you belong to God and you worship God. Verse 23 says of Paul, he stood before these people as one who belonged to God. He stood before these people who, as one who belonged to God and who worshipped God. Now, when Paul became a child of God and a true worshiper of God, that was long before the storm, long before he boarded the ship. You shouldn't wait until there is a crisis and then try to quickly get your life right with God so you'll be okay. Do that as soon as you hear the gospel. Get involved in serving God so that when a crisis comes, your heart and your character and your mindset is already fixed and ready to be strong, to help others, to avoid despair. It will be valuable for each of us to pause and ask, do I really belong to God? And am I a faithful worshiper of God? You don't just somehow slip into the family of God. Being a faithful worshiper of God involves more than just arriving at a building or watching a video class. See, these are heart questions. Do I really belong to God? Am I faithfully a worshiper of God? You belong to God if you have made the choice and taken the steps to enter into his family, hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, confessing that faith, as you repent and obey the Lord in baptism, you become a faithful worshiper of God as you worship him and as you worship him as he has instructed in spirit and in truth with devotion that is consistent and persistent. The voice of sanity and composure on that sinking ship was the man who belonged to God and was a faithful worshiper of God, made possible through Jesus Christ. Number three, when we are suffering, we take heart by believing God. Verse 22, 24, and 25. There is no better way to cope with suffering. Present suffering or anticipated suffering than to ground your mind firmly in your joyful trust in God. I think of what was ahead for Joshua, leading the Israelites into the promised land. Here's what the Lord wanted Joshua and the people to focus on. Deuteronomy 31:23, be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Now, if you have your trust fixed on God and you remember his promises, you're able to take heart in time of crisis. Number four, 
Even though God granted them safety to enjoy that safety, it was necessary for Paul to do some things, and it was necessary for people to follow Paul's instructions. Verse 24 and 31. Did you know this? God will not save you if you refuse to do what he says. He doesn't promise to take care of you while you sit around and do nothing. Paul told the people God would save them, but he gave instructions they were to follow. You can read those in verse 24 and 31. What is this about? Paul said, God is willing to save you, but you must not sit back and do nothing. God promises great things, yet he requires a responsible reaction to what he says. So, keep the sailors and prisoners on board. There's much work to do. Even though God grants us through Christ salvation from sin, this is our application here, even though God grants us through Christ salvation from sin, there are things we need to do to receive that gift. Grace and obedience are always connected. God gives, we receive, and receiving means doing what he says. Prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. James 1, 22. Number five. One more quick lesson. The story illustrates that sometimes our lives are way too cluttered. And in a crisis, we have to throw overboard what isn't important. I want you to listen to verses 18 and 19 from the New International Version. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I want us to think about what this illustrates. When the storm hits and your life is in crisis, you may start thinking that some things you thought were important are not that important. In the crisis, there can be some good thinking and evaluating that didn't occur to you when you were traveling through peaceful waters. I was listening to news coverage of a shooting in the L.A. airport many years ago, and in one interview, a lady said she had no idea where her luggage was, but she wasn't upset. That wasn't her concern. She wasn't worried about that. Her concern was to stay alive and be safe. Moments of crisis can be good for us in providing opportunity to evaluate what is really important to us. And then I found this. I'll leave you with this. Cruising on ancient ships was rather like human life. Sometimes slow, sometimes calm, sometimes dangerous, and even disastrous, but always full of surprises. That's from the Hallman New Testament commentary on Acts, and it cites Paul's statement in Acts 27-25, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God. So, one more chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 28, on February the 17th, 
And then on February the 21st, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Thank you for being with us.